God is not just. Well, hello there. You are listening to the Redeeming God podcast. And I'm your teacher for this podcast, Jeremy Myers. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you might already recognize some differences. Let me just talk a little bit about that. I've been gone for a while. 2020 was a very difficult year for me, as it was, I'm sure, for many of you with the coronavirus and the election and so many other things going on. So I had to take several months off. And it was very hit or miss in 2020. I can't really predict what's going to happen in 2021, but I do want to get back to teaching my podcast, putting some posts up on my blog at redeeminggod.com, and of course, adding more lessons to my online discipleship group. So, uh, in fact, I have two lessons I'm hoping to record later today, one on judgment and one on justice. But uh, this is my first podcast of 2021. And uh, there's some changes. First of all, the name, I'm no longer the One Verse Podcast, and that, uh, let me explain why. Uh, I'm the Redeeming God Podcast now, and that's because I want to change the format of this podcast a little bit. Uh, It's not always going to be talking about a Bible verse, sometimes, or a Bible passage. Sometimes I will talk about a theology topic instead. And of course, you know, Bible verses might get sprinkled in there, but in general, um, the main content of each podcast episode is still going to be focusing on, you know, helping you find freedom and and liberating you from bad ideas about God, Uh, things that you might think about God that are incorrect, uh, harmful ways of reading scripture, understanding scripture, viewing yourself, the church, uh, all those sorts of things that are damaging and destructive to you and your relationship with God. So that's still going to be the focus. It's just not always going to be about a Bible passage. Sometimes it'll be about a theology topic or something else. Now, along with that, that's going to be the main content of the uh, passage, or I'm sorry, the podcast. And today we'll be talking about justice. That's why I started with that sort of shocking statement right there at the beginning. God is not just. We'll be talking about that in a second, or a few minutes anyway. Uh, Along with that, this Redeeming God podcast now, I'm adding two extra sections to it. The first, I'm going to spend a few minutes at the beginning of every podcast. This is the plan anyway. It can change at any time. Just talking about some current events, things in the news, and my perspective on that in light of how I see God and Jesus Christ and read Scripture. So we'll be talking about uh, what happened in Washington, D.C. this last Wednesday, just a couple days ago. And um, and then the second part of each podcast episode going forward will sort of be a mailbag. I have a contact form on my website and also several people have, lots of people have my email addresses, a way to contact me. So um, I find that I answer a lot of the same questions by email over and over and over, which is okay. Uh, but I thought that it would be helpful for me to start answering some of those questions on the podcast. That way, more people, I imagine a lot of people have the same questions, more people can find the answers and hear the answers through this podcast. So if you want to submit a question or comment or something like that, that I might, there's no guarantee that I might be able to answer on the podcast, just go to my website at redeeminggod.com, scroll to the bottom, 
and click on the link down there at the very, very bottom on the right, if you're on a, on a desktop, that says uh, contact me or something like that. Can't remember exactly what it says, but well, I'm on my website. Let me just go check. So you go to the website, redeeminggod.com, scroll to the very, very bottom down there in the footer. Oh, it says click here to contact me. Okay, so uh, just click there. The contact form will open, enter your question there. Now I added a little thing there. I'm fine with keeping your question anonymous. And in general, that's my default um, way I will approach this. I will not mention your name or anything like that. But if you want me to uh, mention your name, or even if you have a website, you can go ahead and enter that and give me permission to enter your name. Okay, so we'll be dealing, uh, answering an email that was sent recently to me in today's podcast episode as well. Okay, so that's sort of how we're going to be going forward with this new and hopefully improved (laughs) uh, Redeeming God podcast. Okay, so uh, let's talk about this first section of the podcast today. Some, a little bit of commentary on current events. Look, you know, and I have uh, been teaching and writing about this for a very, very long time, I am opposed to violence. I am anti-violent, all right? I think that all violence is contrary to the will of God, and uh, that Jesus was nonviolent, and Jesus showed us a very different way than the way that this world has of trying to get things done that we want. The default position in the world is if you want something, go and take it by force. And that usually is going to result in violence. All right, that is a core conviction of mine. That is uh, one of the the key things I believe uh, about how God wants us, how Jesus showed us to live and operate and function in this world is one of my central values, okay? Now, because of that, I can apply that value consistently and evenly, regardless of who is engaging in the violent activity. But I've noticed over the last couple of days, uh, in light of what has happened in D.C., and if you're, if you're in another part of the world, maybe you don't know. So we obviously, you probably do know, here in the United States, we had this election back in November, and it was contested. Uh, uh, we had Donald Trump, President Trump, saying that there was vast um, election fraud. And full disclosure, I believe he was right. I believe there was. And if, if, if you don't believe it, then you, you honestly haven't considered the evidence. Um, 200,000 more voters in Pennsylvania, as one example, than 200,000 200, more votes in Pennsylvania than there are voters. Uh, if that's not massive election fraud, I don't know what is. That's just one example. There's lots of others. Um, and that's a fact, by the way. Okay. Uh, it's, it's not a theory. It, it's a fact. Um, and it's so much more I could say about that. Anyway, so, so Donald Trump wanted uh, there to be an investigation into this and so on and so forth. Anyway, long story short, there's not going to be. And it looks like he lost the election and Biden will become the next president. So lots of Trump supporters went to D.C. this last week and had a protest there in the Capitol. And um, as a result, some of the protesters there broke some windows at the Capitol building and went into the Capitol area where Congress was meeting to certify the electoral votes. That's how it works here in the United States. And um, they took some pictures in there. There was a woman, uh, one of the protesters, who was shot and killed by the Capitol police. uh, And she was shot in the head 
and she she died on the way to the hospital. Uh, that's what the the accounts say. Okay. So, um, and then basically the protests broke up a, a little bit later and everyone went back to their hotels and went home. Um, and, and that's, that's the story. Okay. Now, uh, because of my conviction on violence, I can condemn the violence. The, the people should not have broken windows. That's vandalism. All right. Uh, the people should not have, um, I mean, obviously the woman should not have been shot. That's murder. Um, that was conducted by the Capitol police though. Uh, I don't think she was unarmed. I mean, I, I don't, I'm saying she was unarmed, so there's no reason for them to have shot her. She did not pose them any threat. So I can condemn that violence. Um, and, but the vast majority, we're going to be consistent here, the vast majority, 99.9% of the protesters who were there were peacefully expressing their First Amendment rights to free speech. And they should not be condemned. They should not be called terrorists or insurrectionists um, or anarchists. They were expressing their views and their opinions that this election had been fraudulent. Okay? And it would have been very easy to prove them wrong if Congress or the courts or judges had simply agreed to a forensic uh, investigation, to a forensic audit of the vote but they never did. And that's all, of, all that these people wanted to have happened. Um, it would have been so simple to do that. Uh, and, and so it had, didn't happen, and so they were there protesting, and a few people there did engage in some violence, and I'm able to condemn that violence. Now, uh, currently, the jury's out on who the violence was committed by. Uh, one of the people who committed the violence has been arrested. Turns out he was a, a BLM activist. So he infiltrated... And this is in the news. You can go look it up yourself. Uh, he in infiltrated this protest this last week, uh, acted like a Trump supporter, even though he wasn't, and he is the one who engaged in the violence. So it's ironic, all the people who are condemning the violence, uh, all, the, all the, the liberals and the Democrats condemning the violence right now, um, they're, they're actually condemning, at least in this case, person's case, a BLM activist. And that brings me to my point. There's lots of Christians and theologians who I respect— and have followed, and have supported, and have read their books, and in fact, a few of them have even endorsed my books, or written forwards to my, my books, um, or um, endorsed them with the little blurbs in the front, who are anti-violent, non-violent. They, they teach and preach and write about non-violence. And yet I watched them this last summer, when there was all of this violence conducted all over the United States by BLM and Antifa. Uh, cities were burning. Businesses were being destroyed. People were literally being murdered. I think I read recently that 30 people were murdered over the course of the summer by these BLM and Antifa riots. Uh, and, and there's pictures of... of uh, you've seen the videos of stores being looted, businesses being destroyed, lives being killed, okay? And I watched these theologians and pastors and authors whom I respect, and I was very saddened to find that not a single one of them— now, there are lots of pastors and theologians who did condemn this violence, but these, these specific ones that I was thinking of— not a single one of them condemned this violence. They claimed to be nonviolent, 
but they never said a single word against it. In fact, one of them, um, in fact, maybe I should just say some names here. Greg Boyd, this violence was happening in his very own city in Minneapolis, and he said that the violence was understandable. Is it understandable for people to lash out? Yes, it is. We're sinners, and our our instinctive reaction when we feel that we are wronged is to engage in violence. But we need to resist that violence, uh, that, that instinctive reaction to engage in violence. But other than that, it's almost a, an endorsement, not quite an endorsement of the violence, but, but to say that it's understandable, I, I frankly don't understand that. Um, Condemn it. Condemn the violence. You, you claim to, to, to be against all forms of violence, uh, but when it happens, you are silent on it. I, I just I don't agree. So I, I was repeatedly condemning this violence on my Twitter and other places over the summer because I am nonviolent. Uh, now, these pastors and theologians and, and teachers, I... I tweeted and, and messaged several of them asking if they would condemn the violence. And their answer typically was, I don't need to come out publicly and condemn the violence of BLM and Antifa because everybody knows my position. I am nonviolent. I preach about it. I write about it. I've written books about it. So I don't need to publicly come out and specifically call out the violence that is in happening in our cities. Okay, fine. If that's your position, I can respect that. You are consistently nonviolent. You teach and write about nonviolence, but you don't want to publicly call out a certain group for their violence. Fine. But guess what happened this week? A group of Trump supporters show up in Washington, D.C., and a very tiny percentage of them at least people who are of the group. They probably weren't. Some of them maybe were Trump supporters, but they're still investigating that. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, some of them were Trump supporters. A group of them smash some windows and go into the Capitol building. They do not hurt anybody. They take some pictures. One guy puts his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk. One guy's dressed up in some weird monkey bull suit. I don't know what all that is about. Uh, I've heard that some furniture was stolen. Okay. These same pastors and theologians and authors and teachers who refused to come out and condemn the looting and burning and rioting and, and murder of BL, from BLM activists uh, in our cities across our country, for months on end, these same pastors and theologians and teachers this week were quick to denounce the violence. Greg Boyd called them insurrectionists. Okay, uh, I, I saw Brad Jerzak call them terrorists. He retweet, retweeted a tweet from some guy who was calling them a ter- them terrorists. Uh, Brian Zond. Same thing. Some people were holding up a, a Jesus saves sign. And he, he basically said that this was taking the Lord's name in vain. Because someone at the rally 
was holding a Jesus Saves sign. I just, you know what this is? I'm going to call it out for what it is. It's hypocrisy. If you want to be silent and not call out specific groups for their violence, fine. That can be your approach. But apply it consistently. And whatever you do, don't say that you are non-political, that you just follow Jesus and you don't want to take sides. And then call out one group but not another because that is clearly taking sides. Be consistent. That's what I try to do. Am I going to mess up? Sure. And if I'm inconsistent, call me out on it. That's fine. We all have areas of hypocrisy in our life. Uh, But I am trying my best to be a follower of Jesus who consistently applies the principles of nonviolence everywhere I see it. And I called out to the BLM and Antifa activists for their violence over this past summer. There are great injustices that happen in this country. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, And around the world, great injustice. And these should be called out, but we do not need to engage in violence to do that. And I don't care whether you are a liberal, a Democrat, or a Republican, conservative, or an independent, or, or some other political party from some other country. There are ways to make your point without engaging in violence. All right, and we can apply that consistently. But if you are not going to apply it consistently, if you're going to give one group a pass and then be quick to condemn a different group, then that is the definition of hypocrisy. All right, so that's where I'm at. Agree or disagree if you want. I will probably lose some listeners and some members to my discipleship group over this, but um, that's the way it is. All right. And I'm fine with that. I I understand it. I encourage you to apply your morals and your values and your principles consistently across the board and not show favoritism to one group or another, all the while saying that you uh, are non-political or apolitical. All right. Enough on that. Let's move on to the mailbag. And maybe you can send me an email if you want about your own views on, on what we just talked about. But here's a, a, an email example from one um, reader of my website. And I get this sort of email, really, it's almost numerous times every day. And so I figured I, just, I sort of randomly picked one, and I'm going to try to address it here on the podcast. This person writes this. And again, I do not have permission to share their name, and so I won't. How would one know if they were falsely converted? I was raised in church with a very religious, controlling mother. I continued in church through my teens and 20s and then married a minister. This past year, I started to struggle with my faith. It came to a head in October when I felt like the Holy Spirit departed. I then had what I would term a mini nervous breakdown. After that point, I feel like I was shown that I had been working against God all along and his people, jealousy, envy, anger, all the while not even realizing that my heart was in the state it was in. I had very dark thoughts, even about God, and am now concerned about the unpardonable sin. I have not felt his presence since October. I feel empty and dead inside. How do I know if I am or was saved, and if it is possible that I am now outside of grace. Okay, so there's several 
issues going on here with this sort of email. One is, it sounds like this person is involved in a church that is fairly legalistic. I, I have argued, and I believe in general, churches are legalistic, even those that focus on grace. And it's just different churches are legalistic about different things. And so I generally try to encourage people to not necessarily be devoted or committed to the teachings of their church, but to follow the ways of Jesus into grace and love and forgiveness and acceptance and mercy. And it's very difficult to do, especially when you're married to a minister. My wife could speak to that since I was a minister uh, and still am in, in various ways. But here's her, her ultimate question is, how can I know that I am saved? And even if I don't feel the indwelling Holy Spirit, what does that mean? So that's the ultimate question here. And the bottom line is this. Number one, the Holy Spirit doesn't always come with feelings. In fact, I believe the Holy Spirit rarely comes with feelings. Um, there are feelings that can accompany the indwelling and filling presence of the Holy Spirit, but those feelings will not always be there. So I always tell people, never, ever, 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 ever rely on your feelings as a determining factor for whether or not you have eternal life, for whether or not you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. These things you can know by faith alone. Christianity is about faith, and faith is not not blindly believing things contrary to the facts. As I wrote in my book, What is Faith? Faith is a certainty of knowing things based on the facts, okay? And so you, there are numerous facts that you can look to to help you know that you have eternal life, uh, to help you know that you have the Holy Spirit, that you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And a lot of these facts are found in Scripture and the promises of Jesus. Jesus says, if you believe in me, you have everlasting life. John 3.16, John 5.24, John 6.47, and so on, okay? So, your question then comes down to this. Is Jesus a liar? No, Jesus is not a liar. Jesus speaks the truth. You can know that when Jesus says something, it is the truth. Okay, so Jesus does not lie. So, the, the question then is, have you believed in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus for eternal life? The question to that is, yes, I have believed in Jesus for eternal life. I know that I have eternal life because of Jesus, not because of anything I have done, my own good works or effort or merit or because I'm a good person, anything like that, but simply because Jesus gives it to me, then look, the promises of Jesus is, if you believe in me, you have everlasting life. All right? And, and so therefore, if you are a believer in Jesus, you have everlasting life. It's that simple. And Elsewhere in Scripture, we know that everyone who has everlasting life is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You've been regenerated, you've been indwelled, you've been baptized, and you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, filling is a different thing. Filling of the Holy Spirit can come and go, and filling by the Holy Spirit is just being controlled by the Holy Spirit, okay? Uh, and that can come and go. And uh, I, I'm, again, your feelings are not a determining factor there necessarily, uh, but, um, but regeneration, indwelling, baptism, sealing, all of that is a guaranteed, all four of those are guaranteed to have happened to every person who has believed in Jesus for eternal life. And they are irreversible. You cannot get uh, unbaptized by the Holy Spirit. You cannot become unsealed by the Holy Spirit or anything like that. Okay, so these are the promises of Scripture. So I would tell this person, uh, if you have believed in Jesus for eternal life, then you have eternal life. And if you have eternal life, 
Then you also have the Holy Spirit. And it's that simple. Do not depend on your feelings. And I know this last year was very difficult, especially there in October, November, lots of people going through depression and loss of business and loss of income and sickness and worry and fear about coronavirus and everything else. I get it. I was there as well. In many ways, I still am. But we do not depend on our feelings for eternal life. We depend on Jesus Christ alone. Okay? Uh, We do not depend on our feelings for whether or not we have the Holy Spirit, we've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, whether the Holy Spirit is in us and with us. We depend on the promises and teachings of Scripture. And that is how we know. And as far as that unpardonable sin thing, again, I recommend my book, uh, you have not, Why You Have Not Committed the Unpardonable Sin. I am hoping to update that book very soon, expand it and update it, give it a better, better cover and, and, and uh, more teaching on the insides. But uh, until that happens, I do recommend that for, to help you with uh, that question now as well uh, about the unpardonable sin. The basic answer on that is if you fear you've committed the unpardonable sin, that is the proof that you have not. I know that sounds a little weird, but I, I defend that view in the book. Basically, those who have truly committed the unpardonable sin, they don't worry about it because the Holy Spirit convicts us of of sin and punishment and judgment. And if you are worried about it, that is evidence that you are being convicted by the Holy Spirit about a certain sin in your life. And if the Holy Spirit is convicting you, that means the Holy Spirit is still with you and in you and working on you. All right, so he has not left you. But when the unpardonable sin is committed, the Holy Spirit backs away and says, fine, go your own way. And such a person never worries about the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin again. They just don't worry about it because the Holy Spirit is not convicting them of sin in their life. Okay, so if you're worried about it, that means the Holy Spirit is still working on you. So rejoice and confess and repent and and thank God for the forgiveness that you have uh, in Jesus Christ because of his great love for you. All right, so that is uh, my answer, my my brief answer to that sort of an email. Again, if you have your own question you would like me to consider for answering on my podcast, just go to the contact form on my website at redeeminggod.com, scroll to the bottom, and you can uh, click the little link there that says click here to contact me and fill out that form, send it in, and maybe I will answer your question on a super, uh, uh, on a podcast episode in the future. Now, I started this podcast episode with the phrase, with the statement, God is not just. Let's talk about that a little bit. This week, I finished writing and preparing my um, lesson, my, my gospel dictionary lesson. It's part of my, my discipleship group course. I have all these courses inside my discipleship group. One of them is called the Gospel Dictionary. I'm looking at 52 keywords of the gospel This was supposed to be a one-year project, and I've been working on it now for three or four years, I think, and I'm about halfway done. So it's taking me quite a bit longer than I thought, but the information in there is really, really important and will form a foundation for most of my writing and teaching in the future. So I highly recommend you take that course if you're part of my discipleship group. And anyway, I finished this week the writing the lesson on justice. Justice is one of the words I wanted to look at. Justice is a huge theme in modern America, modern Christianity, modern politics. 
We all want justice. You hear about social justice. And if you're in theology circles, you hear about the difference between retributive justice and restorative justice and how restorative justice is the biblical way and God's way and the way we should approach things. You know, we know about the justice system and how broken it is. I work in with the Department of Justice for the United States, and I am convinced sometimes that there is very little justice in the Department of Justice. Um, it's just very, very broken system. And then we know about chief justices in the Supreme Court, right? Okay, so uh, anyway, there's all this talk about justice, and the world longs for justice. We cry out for justice. We want justice. When the BLM and Antifa activists were out, they they claimed that they wanted justice, justice for Brianna, right? Uh, justice for George Floyd, all these sorts of things. They're crying out for justice. When the when the the protest was taking place in Washington D.C. this week, the the people who were there were crying out for justice because they wanted their day in court to have this election fraud investigated. That's what they wanted, and they never got it, and so they were upset. Uh, and and so uh, everybody is seeking for justice. And so I sat down over the last several weeks to d- prepare this lesson on justice, and I came to a very shocking conclusion from Scripture, one that I never, ever, ever thought I would arrive at. I had no clue this is what the Bible taught about justice. And here's the bottom line. Justice is not in the Bible. The Bible does not defend justice, does not even talk about justice. <laughs> okay? Um, and I came to the even more shocking conclusion that God is not just. You hear all the time when people talk about God is love and he's so loving, he just wants to forgive us. Usually the people say, well, God is loving, but he's also just. And the reason they say that is because, well, you know, God can't just can't just forgive people sinners. He can't just let sinners do whatever they want and go their own way. He, he has to punish sin. He has to, to discipline people for their sin. I mean, he's loving, sure, but God is also just. Guess what? The Bible does not teach that. God is not just. He is loving. He is holy. He is righteous. But he's not just. He's not fair. Right? He doesn't work the way that we think he should. Uh, even our justice system is not just as well. I mean, uh, you, uh, take, take a murderer, for example. Uh, a guy commits murder. Let's say he kills 10 people. You know, let, you know, let's just make it easier. He kills one person. And our justice system says, okay, you killed one person, so you are going to be sent away to prison for life. And sometimes he serves a life sentence, sometimes not. But uh, they say that's justice has been served. Well, really? Has justice been served when a murderer goes away to prison for life? Does that bring the dead person back to his family, to his loved ones? It doesn't. I don't call that justice. It's punishment, but it's not justice. Even if the person, even if the murderer himself, he goes to death row and he eventually finally... <laughs> after decades in prison, that's how our justice system works here, is finally uh, put to death, lethal injection or whatever. Um, Is that just? So one person is killed, so what do we do? We kill the other person. Well, that's eye for an eye, right? Um, 
But is that justice? Again, I would say no. It does not bring the dead person back, the victim. It does not help their family get their loved one back. It's not justice. And so when we humans cry out for justice, the truth of the matter is there is no justice. What we want fixed usually does not get fixed. The harm we want reversed usually cannot be reversed. Right? Despite all of our longing for justice, all of our attempts to achieve justice, there is not a single form of human justice, either political justice or religious justice or whatever, that can make right what was wrong or bring true equality where there is inequality. Okay? There is all human attempts to attain justice. They either result in further injustice, or they really don't do anything about the injustice that they set out to, to fix. All right? So uh, it, that got me thinking, well, that's just, that's just human justice. But God, the all-powerful, all-righteous, all-knowing, wise, loving God— he can engage properly and act justice, can't he? And so I started to look at the passages in Scripture which supposedly talk about justice. And I started to look at the Greek and Hebrew terms. This is what I do in my Gospel Dictionary online course. I define the word in the Greek and Hebrew, and then we look at numerous Bible passages that use those words and uh, to see what they actually mean. And I was shocked, shocked to discover that whenever the, our English Bible translations use the word justice, um, the Greek and Hebrew words behind that word justice are not words for justice. There's a sort of a, a wide variety of words. For example, the two main Greek words, one of them is crisis, K-R-I, not, I mean, these are, these are Greek words, but the English transliteration is K-R-I-S-I-S, crisis, and dikaiosune. All right, which is um, crisis, the best translation for crisis. It's of the, the Crino uh, word family, and uh, it means judgment. And I talk about judgment. That, that, uh, the lesson on judgment and justice will soon be coming to the Gospel Dictionary online course. They're both done, finally. It took me months, uh, but they're done, and I'll be re recording those hopefully this week and putting them online. Uh, Dikaiosune uh, means righteousness justification sometimes, okay? Um, and, and so the, the two main Greek terms that often gets translated as justice are crisis and dikaiosune, but neither one is best translated as justice. Crisis, best translated as judgment, and dikaiosune, best translated as righteousness. It's the same in the Hebrew, all right? Um, the, the main word there, main words there are tzaddik and mishpat, and again, Sadiq is best translated as righteousness and Mishpat as judgment. So, so again, even in the Hebrew, the best ways to translate these words are not as justice, but as judgment or as righteousness. By the way, it's very interesting. The New King James, I'm, I'm sorry, not the New King James, the regular King James uh, is, is one of the better translations here. Uh, the New King James, you look up, get a strong concordance out if you have one of those, look up justice. In your Strong's Concordance, you will find there's not a single New Testament verse, not one, that uses the word justice. 
they did a good job. Um, anytime they see these words, they're going to translate it. They translated it either as judgment or as righteousness and justification. But justice, not a single time. Now, there are a few, few places in the King James where the Old Testament mentions justice, but I would argue that they should have done the same thing there and translate those as judgment or as righteousness. What this ultimately led me to, and I looked at all these verses where sometimes justice is mentioned, and the context, I'm convinced, the context makes a whole lot more sense to talk about judgment or about righteousness, but not about justice. And this led me basically to conclude that the Bible does not talk about justice, does not defend justice, and does not say that God is just. Why is that? The reason is because, as I said earlier, there is no form of justice. Human justice, religious justice, even quote-unquote divine justice, that can truly make right what was wrong. Can bring our dead ones back to us in a way that is meaningful. Can, can reverse the psychological and emotional and physical damage of a child who was raped. What form of justice can fix that? Tell me. There isn't. Not even God. Sorry, not even God can fix that in a child's life. For there, in eternity, maybe. We're going to talk about that as well. If there's any justice, it occurs in eternity. But bottom line, when we get down to it, is God is not just. And there is no justice in this world. So we should stop seeking after it, crying out for it, fighting for justice looking for social justice. It doesn't exist. But you know what there is? There's judgment, and there's righteousness. By the way, I even argue for getting away from the term justification. Did you know that, uh, that the, the words justification and righteousness, okay, two vastly different words in English, I mean, they mean essentially the same thing, the definitions are, but, but, but if you were to look at justification and righteousness, you would think that there are uh, obviously, the two are completely different words. But guess what? In the Greek, it's the same word, Greek word, dikaiosune. Okay? And, and so you would never, an English reader would never imagine, if they read about righteousness and justification in the Bible, that it's only one Greek word behind it. So I argue again in my, uh, I will argue eventually when I talk about righteousness in the Gospel Dictionary Online course, that we need to pick one. We need to go with the righteousness word family, Righteousness, rectification, rectify, or even, nobody uses those words, so let's just make some new ones. Righteousness, rightify, rightification, to, to set things right. Uh, or the justification word family. Justification, justify, justice, that sort of a thing, okay? Now, you could go with the justification word family, but since I think justice is a word that means a certain thing in our English language, I argue that it's much better to use rightification, rightify, uh, righteousness, uh, because that's really what dikaiosune means, to set things right, that we're wrong, okay? And so it's much better to use that word family because it's much closer to the definition. All that to say, when the Bible wants to set things right, there's two things that it does, and two things God does, two things Jesus did, two things God wants us to do. There's judgment and there's righteousness. Now, the judgment isn't, what, again, what we think. And, and you're gonna, I'm not going to even talk about judgment right now because it's a whole different concept. And I will be recording that lesson for my Gospel Dictionary very soon and putting it on there so you can read and hear what I think about the Bible talks about judgment. 
Uh, it's not what you think. I guarantee that as well. Something much more liberating and freeing and exciting than what you might think of as judgment. Um, righteousness, this is how God responds to injustice in the world. Is there injustice? Of course there's injustice. There's injustice everywhere, all the time. All of us are experiencing injustice of one form, one shape, or another. Uh, but the, 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 how does God respond to that? He responds with righteousness. God does not overcome injustice with justice. He overcomes injustice with righteousness. And what does the righteousness of God look like? How does it work? It works with forgiveness and love and grace and mercy. This is how the righteousness of God looks, acts, performs in our broken and hurting world. When God sets out to fight injustice, he doesn't do so with violence and pouring out on others the same pain that they poured out on him. Is that what Jesus did on the cross? Okay, is that what God commands us to do? Following the teachings of Jesus? To punish others in the same way they've hurt you? No. (laughs) Uh, We're supposed to love and forgive and extend grace and mercy. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's what Jesus cried out from the cross. And that is how God responds to injustice as well, and how he calls you and I to respond to injustice in our own lives. So look, I don't know what's happened to you this past year, or past decade, or what you're experiencing right now, But one thing I do know, you are experiencing some form of injustice. Guaranteed. It's a part of life. Something unfair, something not right, is happening to you. There are a wide, numerous number of options available to you for how you're going to respond to that. You definitely should be speaking out against it, some way, shape, or form. Um, You do not need to submit to injustice. I would encourage you not to engage in violence, though. Find some other ways to resist it. Resistance is fine. Jesus resisted injustice. Okay? But one of the very things you should do is forgive and love and extend grace and mercy. And that's the real difficult thing to do, isn't it? So, um, because that's what God does. And that's what Jesus does. And as followers of Jesus, that's what he is calling us to do as well. Anyway, there's lots more I could say about this, and I will do so in my online uh, lesson on justice. But if this is interesting to you, then I do encourage you, if you're part of my discipleship group, to go ahead and and, and, uh, look for that lesson. should be dropping sometime in the next week, definitely by uh, mid-January or so. Okay, so uh, let me know what you think about this new podcast format and structure as well. Sort of the three parts, brief commentary on current events, politics, maybe something personal. I don't know. A mailbag and then sort of getting into the theology and Bible topic that I want to talk about. You've been listening to the Redeeming God podcast. Thank you so much. If you have a question, again, remember, send it to me in the contact form on my website at redeeminggod.com. See you next week. Okay, bye.